Well, good morning. My name is Sean. Uh, I'm usually up here with a guitar. Um, so we'll see how this morning goes. Uh, so if you're new here or visiting, this isn't normal. Don't worry about it. Don't, don't worry about it. It's, it's all right. Um, I, I did a stint as a youth pastor for a while. So while I was studying and getting ready for this morning, uh, the last context that I had to teach was to, to youth kids. So I did my best to dial back the corny jokes and the ridiculous metaphors for you this morning. But uh, I'm excited to be with you this morning. I'm excited to teach this morning, uh, to share with what God has been uh, speaking to me through his word and hopefully uh, what he has for us this morning as we dive into the, to his word um, together. Um, so we're going through the series questions of Jesus. And this, this morning, it's going to be a little, a little heavy, a little, a little straight to the, to the heart of some, some things. Um, but I called dibs on this passage um, months ago, weeks ago, whenever we were dividing up uh, the chunks of the questions of Jesus. So it was kind of set in stone, uh, but I'm excited for this morning. Uh, I'm really passionate about the content of this text. Really, really passionate. Um, it's framed a lot of how I think about life, about ministry, about relationships. Um, I graduated from seminary and the passage that we're gonna be looking at this morning was really crucial to my development as a follower of Christ, to my understanding of what it means to serve the church, and my understanding of what it means to follow Christ. Uh, so I'm hoping that this morning God uh, kind of galvanizes us into what it means uh, to pursue him. Uh, with that said, we're gonna have the text up on the screen behind me, but if you have a Bible or uh, smartphone. Uh, if you would turn to Mark chapter 10 with me, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 22. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. Let's read the, let's read the text together, and then we'll continue on. And, he, and as he was setting out on his journey, Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So as I was thinking about this text and as I was studying it and, and getting my head around it, um, I want to give you all some insights into how I'm wired. Uh, we haven't, I haven't had a chance to meet all of you uh, with a church this size, this is just tough. So I just kinda wanna let you, get you a glimpse inside the old noggin up here. 
Um, how many of you have taken or know of the Myers-Briggs personality profiler? Yeah, yeah, it's, I, I, I am so fascinated by this stuff, not just the Myers-Briggs thing, uh, but all personality profilers, um, psychology stuff, what makes people think and tick and do, do what they do and how they process information and relate to the world. I love, love this stuff. Especially when it comes to, uh, to leading teams or managing people or even just basic uh, emotional intelligence of how to, how to connect with others. Uh, this stuff can be really, really helpful. Um, there's this show, I just kind of want a disclaimer before we go any farther. There's this show called Adam Ruins Everything. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's essentially a show about a guy named Adam who ruins everything. Like, that's the whole premise of the show. So they had an episode of uh, personality profilers, and it was a good, I don't, it was a long show. I think it was like a 45 minutes to an hour long uh, program. And he just, like, the whole thing could have been summarized into what I'm about ready to say. People are too complex to 100% dial them in after 200 questions. Like, that was the whole premise of the show. It's like, yes, agreed. But when we, when we take these things and, and when we study about ourselves, it gives us good boxes. And it's, it's a decent framework, especially if you take um, a multiple, multiple different types of personality profilers and tests and stuff. You kind of see patterns that emerge from the way that you are wired and the way that you work. <laughs> I, uh, uh, they're just, and also they're just fun. Like it's, it's a good way to waste some time. There was, a, there was a buddy I had in undergrad, and we, so we had, we had to take it for a class, the Myers-Briggs, and so we took it, and, uh, and then we looked up online common, like, marital problems between our two personality tests, like, relationship-wise. We weren't married. Just want to throw that out there. We weren't married in undergrad, <laughs> me and my buddy. Uh, we weren't married. But we took it as a married couple, and it was funny. Like, the way that I would say things or the way that I processed information was totally different from the way that he did. And, and when we saw an objective, like, third party uh, lay it out for us, it was like, oh, it offends you when I say these things, or this is why I'm upset at you when you do this. When you come into my room at 1.30 in the morning while I'm trying to sleep, I don't like that, and little things like that. It's also great, uh, I work really close with Phil and Matt. Also, Matt did awesome leading worship this morning. I'm super proud of that guy. He's been working here for a good handful of months now, and it's been really cool uh, watching God grow him and uh, watch him develop as a leader, side note. I work with Matt and Phil a lot, and one of, the, one of the things I had us do as a team is we took a bunch of these profilers, I compiled them into a Google Docs list so that at any point in time, we can get on there and read up about each other. Really helpful tool, or if you want to know how to push someone's buttons, also a good tool for that. Uh, with that said, I did want to show you um, what the Myers-Briggs test kind of looks like. Uh, essentially, there are a bunch of letters, and they all... Um, mean something. So the first two correlate E and I, and that's where you focus your attention, extroversion versus introversion. The next section is the way you take in information, sensing versus intuition, the way you make decisions is next, thinking, feeling, how you deal with the outer world, judging versus perceiving. So you will get a mix and match of these letters, and that means something. If you haven't taken this, I encourage you to just because it's fun and uh, 
and you get to learn a little bit about yourself. My personality, my letters, uh, and one of the reasons why I picked this particular image uh, is they're all the right side, INFP. Those are my letters. Introverted, feeling, or yeah, introversion, intuition, feeling, perceiving. Uh, the archetype of those letters is referred to as the idealist, um, characterized by viewing things and the world the way that they ought to be or the way that they could be as opposed to the way that they are currently. Very idealistic, very championing, ah, this is how things should be, in charge, take the hill type of thing. Uh, dreamer, moody artists, that sort of thing. Convictions are huge. Convictions are huge for me in particular. If I feel like I'm not allowed to live into what I believe to be right or true, I get super depressed super quick and I can lash out and it's not good for anybody, particularly my loving wife, Kate. Um, also characterized by this type, and this is important for later, um, not really concerned with monetary stuff, things, money. I grew up kind of uh, poor kid, didn't have a whole lot. Uh, that stuff doesn't really matter to me, and it doesn't really matter to my wife either. I work at a church, and she teaches elementary school. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about those fields, but you're not making a whole lot of money doing those things. Uh, so, but it's because we love doing it, and, and we feel passionate about what we do, and we're living into that. So I brought all this up. It'll make sense in a little bit. I promise. So back to the text. I want to lay some foundation to, the, to frame our conversation this morning, and I want us to read the text through the framework, or through the lens, and I want us to wrestle with what does the young ruler's question to Jesus really imply? He asks, good teacher, what must I do? Now, we often come to this text and read it as a warning against materialism, a warning against possessions, an attachment to worldly, earthly things. And it can be. I mean, it can be. But I want us to focus and try and grasp a deeper question, a deeper reality going on here in the text, and that is who is or what is good? And why does that concept even matter now, I will venture to say that everybody who's ever lived ever is in the pursuit of the good life, if you follow me, or simply in the pursuit of goodness as a general idea. And I know it's overly simplistic and it seems kind of redundant, but the way that we view goodness is so crucial to how we interact with this text, with this section of Scripture most people haven't even thought about what goodness is or how it applies to them because it looks different for so many people as individuals. American culture is defined by the pursuit of good, the good life. So I'm going to list off some things here. Stop me when I get to yours. Don't actually stop me. I'm just going to list them here. Happiness. Healthy. Nice body, beach ready. People viewing you as attractive. Money, financial stability, surplus of cash on hand to spend at any given time. 
successful career, climbing the corporate ladder, popularity or fame, family, talents, working for the betterment or on behalf of others, simply surviving in this crazy world, getting by, the list goes on. So what is the good and what does it mean to pursue the good for you? And I'm going to be real with you this morning. The good for me, the good life for me, is living into my passions and my convictions. My heart is so easily swayed by what I'm passionate about to the exclusion of all else. It is real easy for me. And if you work with me closely, I know Jeremiah and my wife Kate and Phil and Matt and other Matt, and I, just a lot of people that I work with closely or live with, share life with, know that it's real easy for me to bulldoze, that once I get my mind set to something, once I believe something in my gut to be true, it doesn't matter what you think, I don't care what you think, you're in my way, get out of it, type of thing. And the insidious thing about that is I do it for all of the, my at least, perceived right reasons that I believe to know that I know what's right and I know what's good and it's super easy for me to forget to slow down and to ask what God thinks is right and to slow down and ask what God wants from me if there's anything I've learned in my almost three decades of life it's that that is a dangerous place to be to assume you know what God wants before asking spending time in prayer, seeking God's heart. So we're gonna look at the first two verses here, verses 17 through 18. Why do you call me good? Jesus' immediate response to this guy. And it's important to note here that Jesus isn't, he's not denying his nature as God. He's giving the rich man a chance to reflect on what he's saying the implications of calling Jesus good. Only God is good, and goodness comes from God. Essentially, do you understand what you're saying by calling me good? You're speaking into a reality you don't fully understand, and you don't fully understand what calling me good will cost you or should cost you. There are a lot of definitions of good and what defines good. And I did my best to kind of um, put together a definition for it, and we'll display that here. It's the glory of the Father's love revealed in Jesus through the Spirit. That's my definition of goodness, or at least my, my best attempt to define what goodness is. It's the glory of the Father's love revealed in Jesus through the Spirit. Goodness is bound up in the person of Christ. God is good. And nothing apart from God, at least from our vantage point as Christians, is good. Nothing apart from God is good. Now, I want to talk about this really complicated theological term Bring it out the next time you have lunch with friends. Impress people with your, with your knowledge of 
complicated things. It's good. So this thing is called moralistic therapeutic deism. Yeah. Yeah. You don't even know the context. Just say it at lunch and people will be impressed. So it's a freebie. You're welcome. Moralistic therapeutic deism, abbreviated MTD. And I'm going to read a chunk of text here. Moralistic therapeutic deism is the view in which God wants everyone to be happy and nice and fair to each other. The whole aim of MTD is to enable a platform in which an individual can attain happiness and feel good about one's self. In this view of things, God doesn't necessarily have to be involved in our lives, save for when there's a problem that he's needed to fix. And if you're a good person, at the end of it all, you will go to heaven. In MTD thinking, the good and the good life are bound up together in God being something akin to a cosmic butler or a divine therapist. The whole point of the good life is to be happy and the good extends only so far as contemporary thought deems morally right. There is no objective reality for such a concept as good outside our human estimation. God does not enforce the law in this type of thinking, nor does he hold people to any formal standard. He exists to make life easier. He exists to make life easier. The young ruler was saturated with this type of thinking. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? To the young ruler, eternal life was a matter of doing something not of relationship. Because true relationship with Jesus is life shattering. You're not the same He tips his hand in this by looking for what he can do, what he can accomplish. The good to him, the young ruler, was following the law and living life according to the rules. This guy saw Jesus as a means to an end, as opposed to the end itself. The simple truth here, church, is that our actions do not merit our salvation. We can't work for it. And we must frame our actions and our works around and through the person of Christ. God should be more to us than a means to an end. Amen? Moving on, verses 19 through 22. The honest reality of the young man's heart here is so tragic. His whole life was spent following the rules and living by the law. It was easy and it was safe. That was his culture. That's what he grew up knowing. It was easy and it was safe. And Jesus wanted more than what was easy and what was safe. Jesus wanted the guy's heart. One thing 
you lack, he says. You lack one thing. It's the heart to follow. And notice here, I think it's insightful that Jesus doesn't even challenge the young man's ability to fulfill the law. You know, Jesus gives him the, the bucket list of do this, do that. And the young guy arrogantly responds, I have, ever since I was a wee baby. I've done it. You haven't? Like, that was the whole point. Like, you can't. Jesus completely drives by that. You want to fulfill the law? You want to have the good life? He lacked the desire to leave behind what was most important to him, to drop what was most important to him, and to follow after Jesus. The young ruler had replaced trust in God with earthly possessions, with his works also. He was unwilling to make the sacrifice of what it took to follow after Jesus. It was too costly for him. And this should represent a dark mirror for us watching this guy, reading about this guy. What is too costly for us collectively, church, to sacrifice? I said earlier, like, possessions aren't that big of a deal for me if, for whatever reason, Jesus came at me and was like, hey, leave everything you own, follow me. I'd be like, easy, okay, sweet. But if Jesus was like, hey, those passions and those convictions that you have, that you're so quick to jump to, why don't you, why don't you let those take a back seat and you let me drive for a while? That's hard for me. What's too costly for you? What are you holding on to that might prevent you, prevent your heart, giving a heart to Jesus? And Jesus loved him. That's what the text says. The young man had spent his whole life climbing the ladder of success and only to find that that ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. He had it wrong despite his complete failure to follow the heart of God, his complete failure to understand really who Jesus was, Jesus loved him. That is an encouraging thought for us, church, for those of us who fail, for those of us who misunderstand, for those of us that mess up. But despite that all, Jesus loves us. So how do we follow Jesus, who is good? It's not by hitting religious checkboxes. It's by being honest with ourselves and with God. Life is hard, church. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes life doesn't feel good. My dad died a little while ago. I don't know if you knew so I've been dealing with that. Some of us in this room uh, are sick. Cancer is a thing, unfortunately. So when these things happen, church, do they drive us further into who God is or do they drive us away? 
Are you following after Jesus at the expense of everything? Or are you not? When life hits those bumps, how do you respond? Do we rely on God amidst the confusion and the pain and the heartache? Or do we see God as nothing more than that cosmic band-aid or a way to make ourselves feel better about ourselves? And we ditch it as soon as life gets hard. When we find out what it costs us, really costs us, what Jesus is asking of us our response to that. To that point, I want to read to us the Beatitudes. We're talking about following Jesus, what does that look like? Here we go. This is Matthew chapter 5. Jesus' words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Following Christ's church means to live into this. To pursue Christ who is good is the exact opposite of what worldly wisdom looks like, of what normal looks like. God doesn't call us to be normal, church. He calls us to be faithful. And that's the point. It doesn't make sense. And that's why the rich young ruler couldn't do it. God isn't here to make us feel better, to help us achieve some end goal. He's to make us more like Christ. And the beautiful reality of the gospel is that it doesn't make sense that the God of all creation stepped down, was beaten, murdered, buried, and rose again, and stands offering redemption, grace, and mercy, and hope. Are we willing to follow Christ down that rabbit hole on the path that he set before us, the path that led him to the cross. In a minute, the band's gonna come up and we're gonna respond to God together through music and by taking communion together. If you're new here this morning, or somehow you missed, um, what we're gonna do is we're gonna get up by row and kind of walk to the center, come up and take communion and go back to our seats. Uh, if communion isn't where you're at this morning, taking communion, worshiping together like that with the church, then uh, you might just have to let people walk past you. Gary and I will be in the back. 
be our great privilege to pray with you and for you, anything big or small. But before we get to that, I want us to focus that this whole thing is less about stuff and it's more about our hearts. Jesus wants not just our devotion, but also our affection and our relationship with Christ. Our identity and our sufficiency church is bound up within Christ. You can't separate it. He leads the way for us. And what competes in our pursuit of the good possessions and actions and those things held? The young ruler back, what God, what might God want you to leave in order to follow him? And, church, is following God, is living into the truth of the Beatitudes, is that how you define the good life? Is that your definition of what good is? Is it something else? Our encouragement comes from the God of love. That there is grace for every mistake, that there is mercy for every failure. So church, as we worship together this morning, let's live into that reality. Would you please stand as we read 1 Corinthians together? For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, would you go before us this morning as we celebrate the work of the cross together, as we remember the beautiful truth and reality of the gospel. Encourage our hearts this morning, God. Help us to follow you that we define the good life, that we define goodness by following Jesus, by living into the reality of his love and sacrifice. Go before us, God, being all we think, being all we say, and being all that we do.